you have your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 7. In a moment, I'm going to read verse 14 out of Isaiah chapter 7 as we begin a new sermon series today that we have entitled Songs of the Season. I don't know what you think when you hear that. Oh, so we're not even preaching the Bible anymore. We're just going to preach song lyrics here. Well, that's not entirely the case. You see, these songs that we sing during the Advent season have some very rich biblical theology within them. And many times we sing these phrases and we don't even understand what we're singing, usually because they are quoting Old Testament prophets and we're not as familiar with that area of the scripture. So we're doing this series, Songs of the Season. We're going to look at several songs today, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Next week, Adam will preach and look at Joy to the World. And then I'm going to do my favorite uh, Christmas hymn, which is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And there will be others in this series. And we're going to look at these songs, number one, because we want to appreciate the songs more and be led more and more into worship as we sing them. But secondly, by looking at these songs, we'll have a better understanding of the Bible, which these songs quote. A lot of times we think it's just a metaphor, day spring from on high. We'll have more than one song had that in it today. Key of David, um, uh, Rod of Jesse, all these things are from the Scripture. And so we'll have better biblical knowledge. But most of all, what we want to know is we want to know God better. We want to be closer to him and appreciate more and more who he is and what he has done for us. And so it has been my prayer that this study will help us to do that. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is one of the oldest songs we will sing this season. It was written in the 700s A.D., so it is like 1,200 years old. It is an old song. The lyrics were written by an unknown monk or priest who wrote the words originally in Latin, and he obviously knew his Old Testament and New Testament well. There were seven verses written for the song, and in these monasteries, they would sing one or chant one verse each day during Advent Vespers, the last seven days before Christmas as they led up to Christmas. And the song reviews many of the titles given to the Messiah in Old Testament biblical prophecies which were fulfilled in the, in the person of Christ, in his birth. And so we see God's faithfulness in this. We learn more about who Jesus is and what he came to do as we sing these songs. Before we dive in, I want you to just think about this song with me. Think about what I just said. And think about the way we evaluate songs today. Today, if a song is a big hit on the country charts, and it crosses over to pop charts and does really well, we say, wow, that is a great song, because it can cross genres like that. And we'll hold that up as a great song. Think about this song. It is over a thousand years old. It was originally a chant, originally written in Latin, originally only done in Catholic monasteries and in Catholic masses, and as we sit here today over a thousand years later, it has been translated into dozens of languages sung by virtually all Christian denominations, and it has been recorded 
by the likes of Whitney Houston, Pentatonix, Linda Ronstadt, Jessica Simpson, Trace Atkins, Olivia Newton-John, The Civil Wars, Peter, Paul, and Mary, Neil Diamond, Winona Judd, Bette Midler, Penny and Sparrow, The London Philharmonic Orchestra, Alison Krauss, and Big Daddy Weave. Now, that's a great song if you can cross all those genres. I want to learn about that song, right? So let's take some time to do that now. Obviously, it was first written in Latin, and we're singing it in English. So somebody had to translate it, and this song was translated into English in the 1800s by a man named John Mason Neal, who was a, a remarkable man who could speak and write over 20 different languages. He was the son of an Anglican priest, and he attended Cambridge, where he was a brilliant student and a prize-winning poet. And just like his dad, he was ordained in the Anglican church. And John Mason Neal was a high church traditionalist and he wanted to return his church to the liturgical dignity of church history so he took these ancient hymns that were first written in greek and in latin and he translates them into english so that the church could celebrate this ancient history and it's hilarious to me, because if you read about John Mason Neal in the 1800s, he hated the contemporary songs of his day. And by the contemporary songs of his day, I mean Isaac Watts' Joy to the World that we'll look at next week, right? He looked down on the contemporary drivel such as Wesley's Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Isn't that funny to you? It's funny to me. But here is this guy, and then there's a lesson for us in this, because here's this guy who holds to the tradition of the church, which is not always a bad thing, but he rejected what was new and he revered what was old. And the irony is now, 200 years after he did the translation, Hark the Herald Angels Sing or Joy to the World, those are traditional songs for us. They're not contemporary at all. It seems each generation maybe gets one or two songs in the hymnal so that we sing the best of the best. So I guess our generation's Christmas songs, I don't know, I guess we'll get Mary Did You Know and, and maybe Christmas Shoes in the, in, the, in the hymnal and that'll be represent our generation. We can have that debate later. But the lesson I think we learned from Neil is this. Let's not assume that new is necessarily bad or that old is necessarily good. Let's evaluate the lyrics of songs based on the word of God, based on the scripture. And so let's take some time to do that with this hymn right now. The, this hymn is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. That's the first verse, Emmanuel. Emmanuel is a Hebrew word that means God with us. It's first mentioned in the Bible by the prophet Isaiah, right here where I asked you to turn, Isaiah 7 and verse 14. And we read there where Isaiah is speaking to King Ahaz, who's in some trouble. There's some nations rising up around him, threatening to invade Israel. And the prophet Isaiah says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Notice there's no translation, right? Because these folks are all Jewish. They speak Hebrew. 
And so he just says his name's going to be called Emmanuel, and they all know that that means God with us. But did you catch Matthew chapter 1 that was read when we, when we lit the Advent candle? Tessa Goggins read it for us this morning. I love that passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 1. It always jumped out to me that Mary was pregnant while she was pledged to be married to Joseph. They weren't married yet, and she's found to be pregnant. So he's going to divorce her, right? And then an angel appears to him and says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name, and I think he's going to say Emmanuel, right? Because that's what Isaiah said his name was going to be, right? They're going to call him Emmanuel. But the angel comes and says, and you will give him the name Jesus, Yeshua, the Greek form of Joshua, it means the Lord saves. So he says, you're going to give him the name Jesus. Why? I love this. Because he will save his people from their sins. I love Daniel's prayer today. Just the confidence that we have. Not in ourselves, not in what we've earned. We have confidence because God sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for us. We have confidence because he sent his son, and Matthew 1 says, and he will save his people from their sins. And then he writes, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then he translates it for them because by now, Hebrew people, this is written in Greek, and they don't all know Hebrew. 700 years after Isaiah had written. So he translated it. It means God with us if you don't know what it means. I was always confused by this. Is he Jesus or is he Emmanuel? I know some people name Emmanuel, right? Baseball players, Manny, for that matter, there's baseball players, Jesus, right? I mean, which is it? What's the name? Does the Bible contradict itself? Well, if you understand what's going on here, it makes sense. Let me give you a contemporary example Many of you call me Pastor Scott. Pastor is not my name. It is a role that I fulfill in your life as the pastor of the church. Hopefully I'm a good shepherd to you and to your heart. And then my name is Scott, right? Well, that's what's going on here. Emmanuel, God with us, is a role that Jesus fulfills in our lives and his name is Jesus the Lord saves. So as we look at this hymn, if we look at it, um, I've got the, this red book is a hymnal. It has hymns in it, if you're not familiar with those. I, I know we have to clarify these days. If you look at, this is really a prayer. We're praying, O come, O come, Emmanuel, come God with us and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. We'll talk more about that ransom that he brings and how he frees us from all that enslaves us. Verse 2 of the hymn, as it comes in the hymnal, is, O come, O come, thou Lord of might. Thou Lord of might. The Hebrew word here is El Shaddai. Sometimes your translation and English translations may translated as God Almighty or Lord of hosts. 
And it tells us more about who we actually are praying to. Who are we asking to come? We're asking the Lord of might or God Almighty, El Shaddai, to come to us. It's a name that God gives himself. It's how he reveals himself to Abraham. In Genesis 17 and verse 1, he says, I am El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. I am the Lord of might. And if you read verse 2 of the hymn, right, we sang it before, come Lord of might, who to thy tribes on Sinai's height in ancient times did give the law and in cloud and majesty and awe. A reference to Exodus 19 and Exodus 20. And in Exodus 19, God does appear in might. God Almighty, El Shaddai, descends on Mount Sinai in smoke and in fire and in thunder. And there's this loud trumpet sound. And the people say, stop speaking to us because it's overwhelming to see a visual representation of the Lord of might. It's in Exodus 19. And in Exodus 20... God begins to give the law to Moses. And as he gives the law, we see that not only is he the God of might, but we see that he is a God who is good. How do we know? We look at the law. It's a reflection of his character. It is a reflection of what he's like. What is this God like? He is a God who frees his people from bondage in Egypt, who brings them out. And he says, listen, I know that you have worked every day of your entire life for 400 years, generation after generation, but I want you to have one day off a week when all you do is worship and rest. And say, man, this is a good God who does this for us. You can tell that he's good because in his law, he says, listen, as you live life together in marriage, I want you to be faithful to one another because life works better when husbands and wives are faithful to one another. The good God. He says, he gives the law and he says, listen, life works better if you don't lie to one another. If you respect one another's stuff and you don't steal and you don't covet and so as they hear the law given, they realize that he is not only God Almighty, which they see that visual representation in Exodus 19, but they also hear the law and realize that God is good. And it is extremely important that we hold both of those things together. I know John and I have talked about this before. We have to hold those things together that God is God Almighty, but he's also good. Think about that. If he's God Almighty and can do whatever he wants to do and he's not good, <laughs> that's not good news for us. We're in trouble, right? And it may sound like a nicer message to say that God's really, really good, but he's just not powerful. He's not almighty. That may sound like a nicer message, but at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter if he's good if he can't really do anything, right? So it's so important that we hold these things together, that he's God Almighty and he's good. It gives us such hope. I know I'm not the application yet, but I just got to say, God Almighty accomplishes his purposes. And that means for his people, he's using all things, even the bad things that happen to us, he's using them for our good. 
to make us look more like Jesus. We'll talk about that more in a moment, but we're asking God to be with us, the Lord of might, the, the one who is also good. He is God Almighty, and he's a good God. Verse 3 of the hymn. We're asking God to be with us, which God, the God who's almighty, the Lord of might, the one who's also good, who gave the law. Verse 3, O come thou rod of Jesse, rod of Jesse. Well, this is just a reference to Isaiah chapter 11. So if you're in Isaiah 7, turn over a couple of pages. Oh my, what is the hymn writer saying here? Look at Isaiah 11 and verse 1. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. He's saying, look, a descendant of Jesse. Do you know who Jesse is? Not Uncle Jesse on Dukes of Hazard, right? Jesse, King David's father. So a descendant of Jesse, a descendant of King David. Read the new, They're always saying, son of David, right? They're always saying, he's David's son. That's why they always say that, because... Isaiah 11 verse 1 says, a descendant of David will come, and, and what's he going to do? Who is he? Describe him. Verse 2, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy, with justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. Do you hear what that's saying? Listen, this is really important because some of us get freaked out because we think the bad guys are going to win. Many of us live life. You post things that you post on Facebook because you think the bad guys are going to win. We get freaked out and go out of our minds because we think the bad guys are winning. Listen to me. This is saying when the rod of Jesse comes, he is not fooled by appearances. He doesn't just judge based on what people say. He's not going to be fooled. He's going to judge with righteousness. He's going to do things the right way. So we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to play scared as Christians. We don't have to get desperate and begin to say crazy things. Because evil will not triumph over good. Because the rod of Jesse will come. And look what it says he will do. Righteousness will be his belt, faithfulness the sash around his waist. Verse 6, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion, the yearling lying down together, and a little child will lead them, the cow will feed with the bear, the young will lie down together, the lion will eat straw like the ox, the infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child will put his hand in the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What's this saying? It's saying that when the rod of Jesse comes, he's going to make all things right. He's going to right all wrongs. All that animosity between animals between animals eating each other and between animals and people and between people and people, that he's going to resolve all that. That all these things that came into the world, death, decay, oppression, the things that came into the world as a result of the fall after Genesis 1 and 2, that he's going to write all those things such that a child can put his hand in a cobra's nest and not be harmed. There'll be no animosity, no oppression, no more mourning or crying or pain or death. 
Look at verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, there he is, the one descended from Jesse, will stand as a banner for the people. The nations will rally to him. Oh, my. This just isn't a, a, a Hebrew God or a Jewish Messiah. But he's one who saves people from every tribe and nation and people group. That's why the song goes on to say that he is one who can save us from Satan's tyranny. He can save us from hell. He helps us to overcome the grave. Let me keep going. Let me do verse 5. Oh, come thou key of David. Key of David. I'd never even heard of that before. Key of David. What does that even mean? It's another reference to Isaiah. If you're in Isaiah 11, turn over a couple more pages to Isaiah 22. In Isaiah chapter 22 and verse 22, God is speaking. He says, I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. And what he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. You might have sung this song your whole life. You never knew key of David was mentioned in the scriptures. In Isaiah 22, verse 22. And if you read Revelation 3 and verse 7, it specifically applies this verse to Jesus. It says, yes, Jesus is the one who opens doors that no one can shut and shuts doors that no one can open. But what does this mean that he's the key of David? The key means that he has authority and power to govern it's what we said when we recited the call to worship from Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 7 where we said that the government will be upon his shoulders, right? That he will have power and authority, that he will rule and reign. We tend to know our New Testament a little bit better than the Old Testament because there's the New Testament people of God. But doesn't the New Testament make more sense if you understand the Old Testament? I mean, think about something like the Great Commission, Matthew 28. What does Jesus say? All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Why? Because he's the key of David. Right? And then what does he say? Therefore, go make disciples of all nations. Why? Because he's the root of Jesse, who the nations will rally to and will come to him. All this laid as a foundation in the Old Testament. Let's look at day spring from on high. We've already sung two songs today that referred to him as the day spring from on high. I just thought that was kind of poetic language. Didn't even know it was in the scripture. But it appears here in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and we sang it when we sang um, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. Both mentioned the day spring from on high. This phrase is only used in the King James Version of the Bible. So if you have the King James Version, you can see Dayspring from on high written. It's an archaic word that we don't really use in the same way. Now, if you say Dayspring and look up the modern definition that we use, it just means a new era or a new season. If you look at the archaic, like where it says archaic form, it's used this way. It means sunrise or dawn, day spring. So it means the sun rises or the dawn or the morning. The NIV translates the word for day spring as rising sun. 
If you have the English Standard Version or the New American Standard, it translates it as the sunrise from on high. Well, where do we see this language in the Scripture? Well, if you go to Malachi, Malachi chapter 4, the last book of the Old Testament, the last chapter in the Old Testament, and you begin reading in Malachi chapter 4, listen to this. The prophet Malachi says, Surely the day is coming... It will burn like a furnace all the year again, and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty, El Shaddai, right? We just learned about, we just saw that language. Not a root or a branch will be left them, but for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness, that's S-U-N, the star that's 93 million miles from the earth, right? The sun that rises. The Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Malachi's quoting Hark the Herald Angel sings right here. Thank you, yes. We're going to get to Hark the Herald Angels and see that he's actually quoting Malachi 4. Thank you. He says, it will rise with healing and you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. So there's this freedom that comes when the day spring from on high comes, right? When this sun rises, when there's this dawn, when there's this morning. We see it connected to Jesus in Luke chapter 1. If you remember the story, remember John the Baptist comes ahead of him and Zechariah and Elizabeth can't have children, and then God grants them a child, and it's John the Baptist who's going to prepare the way for the Lord, the Elijah that was to come. And so in Zechariah's song, when he is praising God for what he is doing, he writes in Luke 1, beginning in verse 76, he says, And you, my child, speaking of John the Baptist, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun, S-U-N, will come to us from heaven. There's your day spring from on high, right? The day spring from on high, the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace, to lead us in the way of shalom that we've talked about. Life as it was designed to be completeness, wholeness. I think this verse 4 in the song captures what the Bible describes here. When we look at the song, we say, Oh, come, day spring from on high, cheer us. By thy drawing nigh, or the version we sang, by thy advent, by your appearance, right? Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Well, put all these things together. This song is really just a prayer, right? That God would be with us. Which God? The one who's the Lord of might, the one who's mighty and good, the one who's the rod of Jesse, the descendant of King David, who judges rightly and will make all things right and will rally people from every tribe and nation and people group to himself. The one who's the key of David with authority and power to govern and rule and reign. The day spring from on high, 
who comes as a light into a dark world and rises like a sunrise with healing in his wings for people from every tribe and nation and people group. I wonder, is that your prayer? Is that the greatest longing of your heart? This song is a prayer. And, and it leads us to either say, you know, that's not my greatest hope. I need to rearrange my priorities, my thought processes. Or it gives us words to express the greatest longings of our heart when we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. One of the genius things about this song is when Isaiah prophesied about Emmanuel and the rod of Jesse and the key of David, the people of God were in captivity in Babylon. So when Isaiah writes about the Messiah, the people of God were longing and praying that the Messiah would come to ransom captive Israel. But that should be our prayer as well, shouldn't it? It's the genius of the song is that it applies to the Old Testament people of God as well as the New Testament people of God. We too find ourselves in exile, pilgrims in a dark and sinful world, captive to the evil one. And we ourselves have to fight against our own flesh. We can become captive to the love of money to the lust for sex, the lust for power, the lust for popularity, the need to be right, or just wanting to have things the way we want them to be. Do you long for Jesus to come and to free us from those things that enslave us? Do you pray for that? This song should be our prayer as well. God, come and be with us. Come in might. Come and make all things right. And it is a powerful prayer. I want you to understand. When we pray, God, come and be with us. God, Emmanuel, come and be with us. You need to understand that when God is with someone, that doesn't just mean that he comes and he hangs out with you and gets coffee, Right? I can be with you, and it might make a difference in your life, and it might not. But in the Scripture, if God is with somebody, there is a power for living life in a broken world that comes from God being with you. There is a peace that comes. Even though we live life in a broken world, there is a peace that comes from God being with us. I wonder, what are you facing this Christmas? I'm sure there'll be good things. I pray for good things for you. But I must tell you, no matter how good it is, it's not as good as God himself. His presence with you is the best thing that you could ever have. It's the greatest gift that has been offered to you ever, which is why we celebrate this time of year. Some of us will face bad things. We'll face hard things. But listen, if God is with you, then you can have a power 
to keep moving through those things. You can have a peace in the midst of great brokenness. You can have a hope that God is using even the bad things for your good because of who he is and what he's done. So I call you to draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God and rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel will come to thee, O people of God. Let's pray now and ask him to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for all of these pictures and reminders of your faithfulness to your people. I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds, and that you would help us to see your faithfulness. Help us to celebrate your goodness and your power. And Father, more than anything else, we ask that you would be with us, that we would never know life separated from you, that we would live life every day conscious of your presence with us, and that that would give us great peace and great hope, regardless of the situations in which we find ourselves. Please come and do this, for it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.